until the boss called me up and said, come in to work. I just hung up on that slave driving jerk. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. Well, you'd think I'd rather be sweating on a dock or watching somebody use a hammer lock. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Here we are once again, otherwise known as episode 17. I went there anyways. Are we live? Are we actually? We're, we're live. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that you start the show with saying episode 17 <laughs> of the Total Beasties show. That's what I was waiting for. No. So we're actually live. We're live. So, oh, okay. 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 Sorry. Sorry. I'm throwing I, you a curveball. Sorry to be unprofessional here. I, I just thought we were just taking levels or something. Yeah. He, he looked at me like I was taking a dump in front of him or something. <laughs> um, what a week it's been. Another successful week for the Total Beasties show last week. I, it was a walk in the park for me to do that episode, literally. Yeah. That dog chased me down, and I and a lot of people uh, actually contacted me about Tony Khan, saying I that I was so wrong that I said he's the worst booker in the world. Someone said he's not the worst booker in the world. Certainly he could improve. And then, you know, like, I, I don't want to belabor the point and make him the new Adam Knight, but Tony <laughs> Khan, if he didn't have... See, the thing is, if Tony Khan didn't have his daddy's money... He would not be in the wrestling business. Understand that, people. So when you want to argue that he's doing good as a booker, he is just a guy that had a billion dollars. Yeah. If you don't, if you take that billion dollars away from him, he is just Tony Khan. He's not qualified to be a booker. Very fair point. Very fair. But moreover, even if you take that billion dollars and you take it away, but you give him a million dollars to do it, just a million. Couldn't do it. I mean, a million's a lot, but just a million. Couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Exactly. In fact, he couldn't do with a million dollars what I did with WFX. Ex that's exactly Very, very I honestly. I don't think he could. And that's not to say I'm better than Tony Khan. Maybe, like, that's not a very fair comparison. I didn't have a billion dollars. But if he had had Jeff Dick as a partner and he had had the financial constraints, and I've talked about that a lot with WFX, he could not do what I did. There's not many people who could. That's not to say I was special or great. It was a perfect storm for me. But Tony Khan couldn't do it. Tony Khan is a billionaire's kid who is buying his way to that level. Realistically, if I was Tony Khan right now, do you know what I would do? What's that? I would try to hire Shane McMahon. Yeah. To come in and be that guy. Because it would shake up the industry. And it would make... People would start... be. The amount of hype on, on AEW at that point would be through the roof and the curiosity would be major, even if Shane isn't even the, the booker per se, but you make him vice president of wrestling operations, you give him an executive po post for the competition of Triple H as the WWE booker and AEW ran by Tony Khan with Shane McMahon, that would be pretty electric if you ask me. Absolutely. But he's not going to do it because he's got an ego and he doesn't want to bring in. He doesn't want Shane McMahon or Eric Bischoff or Jim Cornyn. Net. He wants to be Tony Khan with his daddy's money running the show with a bunch of people who say yes because their contracts are are contingent to it. Well, before Do you think we, Chris before Jericho we get deep into it? I, before we get deep into it, I, I know you want to move on from that into something else, but I have a question, a follow up question to that. Now, let's just engage in a little hypothetical here. If he did bring in Shane McMahon, if you were Tony Khan, would you have him as an on air character, or would it just be that? sort of director of operations. So role. when you hire somebody like Shane McMahon or you, even a Dixie Carter, right? And people are rolling their eyes right now. But Dixie Carter did good with what she had yeah. for many years. 
she built TNA with a lot less money than he did with AEW, and she had over a million viewers consistently. So don't roll your eyes about Dixie Carter. But if you were to secure a deal with Shane McMahon, and I'm hypothetically speaking, and it's never gonna, likely never going to happen. But if you had Shane McMahon, you have to maximize his value in every way. Could he be an on-air character? You're darn right he could be. Could he be compelling? You're darn right. Could he offer you expertise, insights, and advice that this guy misses? You're damn right he could. That's That would be the number one guy that AEW could hire tomorrow is Shane McMahon. He will never try. Tony Khan does not want people around him who know more. He wants people. Chris Jericho wouldn't even piss on this guy if it wasn't for the fact he's got a billion dollars. We'll lend him the private jet here and there and pay him way more than anybody else. Yeah. So that's why you hear Chris Jericho always defend Tony Khan. And John Moxley wouldn't be that big a star in WWE as he's being pushed to be in AEW. He would be a star, but he wouldn't be the guy, whereas they're trying to force that down our throats. CM Punk went there because he had creative freedom. Brian Danielson, I think, even though he had that long match on Wednesday night, Brian Danielson's being underutilized on that roster right now. And remember when they got Christian Cage and they decided he's going to go in a program with Kenny Omega for the title. He was over pushing Christian. It did nothing for Kenny Omega. Don't argue that this guy's a great booker when he hasn't shown to be a great booker. He's shown that he could use $100 million of his daddy's money and he could get the best talent to come and work. Hey, I could have done that. If I had a billion dollars, I could have done it. But I didn't have a billion dollars. I think when he starts to make something and and they'll argue, oh, homegrown talent, Orange Cassidy or this guy or this guy or this guy, there are some success stories. There absolutely are. But his top guys are still guys that he acquired. And his top guy should be Kenny Omega. And I guarantee you he's dropping the ball with Kenny Omega's return too. Tony Khan, I'm sorry. You couldn't do what I did working for Jeff Dick, which was not an easy task. And I probably could do much of what you're doing with the with the w, with the AEW budget that your daddy gave you. Uh, not a comparable, not a comparable. I refuse to compare it because I'll tell you one thing: Tony Khan did that no one else could have done. Tony Khan was able to get TN, TNT to give a, Turner to give a contract, Turner Networks to give a contract for yeah. wrestling. That wasn't going to be easy. And trust me, Dixie failed to do it. Uh, Jeff Jarrett failed to do it. Every other person that tried failed to do it. That's Tony Khan's greatest accomplishment was that he was able to get a startup back on TV, but he never should have put the burden of booking on himself. And that prick Dave Meltzer never should have said that's the booker of the year because it validated what he was doing. And I think AEW is still the product for for the lapsed fan to watch, but they're starting... the the consistency of dropping the ball they've had a three-year window to win a championship they failed to win the championship so far and now that three-year window is going to start to close because i think wrestling fans are starting to see through it it is starting to close even for me specifically as somebody who kind of got back into it and started watching it again i'll be honest with you i'm two 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 weeks behind on it because i've just only two only two because every now and then there's brilliance. There is brilliance every now and then, but there's so many balls that get dropped. I see it drop, and then I go, ugh, and I roll my eyes, and I'm like, what is happening here? Like, yeah, and you have that huge roster that you got to get TV time for all the guys, and then you run that Brian Danielson, uh, who was he wrestling? Brian Danielson against... Was it Garcia? No, yeah, what? Garcia, and they went... 
forever. Like I think they might've even gone close to an hour. Yeah. Don't do that on a two hour TV program. You save that for pay-per-view. That should have been a match you put on as a dream match for the, for the very, very enthused as a YouTube dream match. And you do that then where you can go an hour and it doesn't take away from your actual TV viewership. Do you know what the drop off probably was? I don't know. I haven't seen, I didn't look at the ratings, but anyway, enough about AEW. How, you know, we got a guest this week. Well, yeah, How this, have you not mentioned that? Th- th- that's what I'm going to get to. Mention I, I, the guest. And I can't believe we've got this guest. I don't know how you pulled this off, to be honest with you. I'll tell you how. But we're, we've got Vance Nevada, your best friend. My cousin. On the show. Your cousin and your best friend on the show today. And I'm surprised he's coming on after some of the things you've said. You've, you've oh, gotten a little bit please, heated at times. Please, please. <sighs> You make, I could make this sound like it was a miracle and I had to call in favors and dot, 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 dot. Am I hot potting? I don't know. Um, <laughs> he, he called the family. No. Said, I, I sent an email directly. Yeah. I, I, I need him. The, the ratings, yeah. the ratings. Well, I, trust me. I, here's what happened. I sent an email a few, about a month and a half ago. Said, Vance, I'd like to bring you on. I know you got the book coming out. And he said, the book's coming out a little bit later. He said, if you want me to come on now, I could, or we can do it closer to the release of the book. The book is called Uncontrolled Chaos. That book is about to be released. I think Vance would have taken an interview with a vacuum cleaner at this point. He was, when you're releasing something like a book or something, you're going to take every interview request. Don't read anything into it. I didn't make any concessions. So when we have them on, I'm, you know, I'm going to treat him like. Yeah, you better like, behave yourself. I prom- I'm, I'm telling you right now. What, what would I do? I, I don't know, but y- you are an agent of chaos at times. Well, it's called uncontrolled chaos. That's Maybe I had to give a preview. No, I I promise that he's he wants to sell a book. It's called uncontrolled chaos. It's a it's a retrospective is historical work as a historian, and I'm not I'm not I could what am I going to blindside him? Hey, what about this? No, no, I respect the work he's done. I haven't read it yet. If he says bad things about me, then then we'll have a follow-up. But right now I haven't seen it. I haven't read it and I, I wish him well. I hope he sells 10,000 books. Well, we've got Vance standing by right now on the I'll lines. make him wait a little bit longer. I got more we'll, to say. We're going to keep him on hold? Okay. Yeah, a little bit, a little right, bit. Let's keep him on hold. Did you ever see the Wrestle Rock Rumble? Like I the video? Did, I, I, You sent me the video. I haven't seen it yet though. Okay, I'm not going to talk more about that yet, but I, I, that is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in the wrestling business. I'm pretty excited about the video. Oh, yeah. Because when you, you called me earlier today and you're like, have you seen this? And I was like, no, I don't think I'm so. I'm not going to tell you why I've asked you about this because I'm just not going to tell you. But you got very animated. You're like, I'm going to send it to it's you It's one right of my now. favorite things I've ever seen. And I wish local, I would like to see a local wrestling company in, in Winnipeg, in every independent, in every North America city, I would like to see them do a rendition of the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Be She's Wrestling. Be She's Wrestling. Well, we're not, we're not running any shows, <laughs> but it is one of the most entertaining things ever. And I just bring it up to shoot the she's. Okay. Right. Now you can go to break and you can bring your hero Vance Nevada on. And I know you're going to run the entire interview. You're not going to let me talk because you're worried. I'm going to say something to offend him, but yeah, there we go. I'm going to let you talk, but uh, you've got a short le- leash, Mike Davidson. Coming up You're after this. You're not the first person to try to put me on a leash, and it ain't going to work. Go. Woo! After this, Vance Nevada. This episode of the Total Bees Sheets Show is powered by FirstRow.ca, Canada's online collectible store where you'll find the coolest sports cards, autographs from your favorites, action figures, and, of course, wrestling collectibles galore. 
As a loyal Total Bichy Show listener, you can get 10% off your order using the code BEESCHEEZ. Again, the code is B-E-E-Z-S-H-E-E-Z, one word, and receive 10% off your order. Firstrow.ca, Canada's online collectible store. The Total Bichy's Show releases new episodes every Monday. Follow the Total Bichy's Show on Twitter at Total B She's, on Instagram at Total B She's, or search us on Facebook, Total B She's. On the line with us now, the prolific Vance Nevada and a new book we're talking about today. Vance, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure, gentlemen. So Vance, I mean, I say prolific and and some people might be like, yeah, like he wrote a book, but you, you've written, this is your second book now, isn't it? Oh, uh, this is the third book. Yeah. The third book. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the second book was Wrestling in the Canadian West. Okay. That's the one I know about. The one, then what was the first yeah. book? The, the first book, uh, you know, was uh, a, sort of a self-published effort in 1999 uh, that, uh, that I don't talk about that much because uh, when I look back at now at, at the book that was written then uh, I'm almost embarrassed, but it was, you know, put out as a 23 year old kid that just wanted to write about wrestling history. Yeah. You're definitely an accomplished historian who's um, got quite a resume for yourself. What was it that got you interested in, in the history, especially of Canadian wrestling, but wrestling as a whole? You know, it was, uh, you know, kind of, kind of by fluke, which is uh, <laughs> a recurring theme in life. But, uh, you know, I just started wrestling in Winnipeg and I, I was about a year in and we got uh, uh, television on Shaw Cable for River City Wrestling. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even I didn't even watch the program because I was living in Brandon at the time and, and the program didn't reach the, the uh, you know, the surrounding towns. So uh, I had come in, uh, you know, a, a day early one time to go to a to go to a buddy's house and actually watch the show and see like how it actually played out. And, uh, in the commentary of one of my matches, uh, Doug McCall mentioned, yeah, you know, Vance Nevada is a student of Ernest Frenchie Rowe, who was tag team partners with Frenchie Champagne. And, uh, they were very successful back in the day. And I thought that's incredibly bizarre because in the time that I had trained with, uh, with Ernie Rowe, he had never mentioned Frenchie Champagne at all. And I just thought, well, geez, he must not have been that big of a deal. But it got me curious, and uh, so I started to go down to the Winnipeg Public Archives in the summer of '94, looking for this connection between the guy that trained me and and uh, my trainer Ernest Rowe. And uh, what I discovered that summer was that that uh, you know citation was completely fictitious. There was no connection between Frenchie Champagne and Ernie Rowe. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, what I, what I found out was that the, the Winnipeg wrestling scene in the fifties and sixties was incredible. Uh, and Frenchie champagne was a huge deal. So he was the headliner of the local shows that ran out of St. Boniface. Uh, but then he was also like the referee when the wrestling would come out of Minneapolis. And so all the big stars like Gene Kaniski and Buddy Rogers, well, Frenchie champagne was in the mix as a referee on those shows. Okay. So he was kind of like, Mr. Wrestling for Winnipeg in that time. But, you know, then when I discovered that you had, uh, you know, Bulldog Bob Brown, Moose Murawski, Gil Hayes, the Von Steigers, 
uh, Roy McClarty, George Gordianko, Gordon Nelson, Bill Dromo, all these guys that came out of Winnipeg that went on to be international stars. That it was like I was hooked. I needed to needed to find more, mm-hmm. and that just kind of started the what started was supposed to be a summer project in 1994. Uh, continues to this day. So Doug McCall is the guy that inspired you to become a historian, and he was BSing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing story. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you've done as much homework as anybody probably on the planet about Canadian wrestling and especially wrestling's history in Winnipeg. Was was Bulldog Bob Brown the biggest star to go from Winnipeg and become an international star at that time before Piper? Or was there others that I'm missing? I think, well, you know, Moose Murowski and and Bob Brown, they were, you know, they're kind of these, you know, territory, you know, mainstays, you know, uh, journeymen, you might say. But I think the, the long overlooked story for Winnipeg is George Gordienko. Okay. Uh, so Gordienko, you know, from the time he was, you know, in middle school, was on the sports pages in Winnipeg for anything that he would do. If he decided he was going to play rugby, well, then he was on the championship rugby team. If he was going to do weightlifting, he was breaking, you know, provincial and national records. Um, so when he got into professional wrestling after – uh, you know, training as an amateur at the Winnipeg YMCA. He went to Minneapolis, which was what everybody did at that time. You know, you want to go pro, you have to go to Minneapolis and train with Joe Pazendat. And so Gordienko got down there and in his first year in the business, they were already saying, this guy is going to be a future world champion. Like at 19 years old, they mm-hmm. were already sort of tagging this guy with that. Now, unfortunately for George, uh, having the last name Gordienko, at the height of uh, the McCarthy era in the United States, where they were, you know, hunting communists uh, in 1949, uh, he got uh, expelled from the United States Whoa. Uh, for suspicion of being a communist. Oh. So, so he came home to Winnipeg and, uh, you know, rightfully so said, you know what, screw America. I'll never wrestle on American soil again. Mm-hmm. Uh and actually took a few years off from wrestling altogether and did a little bit of traveling internationally. And then a few years later, Stu Hart called him up and said, Hey, why don't you come wrestle for me? And, you know, he got back into the game in the early, early fifties and wrestled a few years for Stu Hart. But then he got connected with these European guys that Stu was bringing in. Uh, and they said, you, you know, George, you really should come to England. And when he got over to Europe, like he became, uh, you know, such a major sensation in Europe that he became, um, I, I'd say in a similar way, uh, if you've heard about the culture of Japanese wrestling, if you want to be a big star in Japan, you learn your trade there, then you have to go abroad for a year, uh, you know, completely for a year and then come back and then they'll actually move you to the main event. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, uh, a lot of guys were doing that in Europe. You want to be a big star in in New Zealand or wherever you have to go to England, that was the place. And so you'd have guys like John De Silva from New Zealand or uh, Adnan L. Casey from Iraq. They'd go over to England, wrestle for a year, you know, sort of get their experience and their credibility, and then they'd come back. And when they would come back and then establish themselves as the headliner in their country, George Gordienko would be the guy brought in to make them. So he did it in India. He did it in New Zealand. He did it in Greece. And he did it in Iraq. And the, the match in Iraq, this one is one that, you know, is just such a fascinating story. So 
when Gordienko went to Iraq in 1971 to, to uh, put over Adnan Al-Casey, he was paid $10,000. Wow. Wow. In 1971 money. In 1971. Yeah. Uh, when he went there, he was, he was put up in the palace uh, for a week. And there was lots of like media interviews and public workouts and things like that. When they actually got to the stadium for the match, they drew 110,000 people. Oh, wow. Uh, they were the only match on the show. And how long did they go? Uh, not, not long because the, as, as the, as <laughs> George Gordienko started to get the heat on Al Casey, uh, he could see the tensions rising in the crowd yep. to the point where it was getting dangerous. And, uh, he said, okay, let's take it home. Uh, and, and it was like a police escort directly from the ring into a van and out of the stadium. Wow. Take it home, uh, kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they called George at the hotel later and said, okay, so in four days when we do this again in Riyadh, here's how it's going to go. George said, it's not happening again. I'm going home. Yeah. Did, uh, was George, ever, sorry, was George ever able to get back to the States? And cause in 71 tensions on communism had really eased, you would think, right? Did he ever go back to the States? Well, you know, the interesting thing about George is that had history gone different for him, he would be a household name right now. Yeah. So during that time when he was working with Stu, one of the guys that he had a chance to wrestle was Lou says. And of course, Lou is legendary NWA world champion. Mm-hmm. And after doing a couple of one hour draws with Lou, uh, Lou says was actually petitioning uh, to drop the belt to George Gordianko. Wow. Um, and so they had like, you know, files going forward to the U S state department to you know have his ban lifted. Uh, and when that didn't happen, um, the belt did come back to Canada, but it went back to Whipper Billy Watson for his second reign. But Watson's second reign was supposed to be Gordianko's run. Oh, all this from Winnipeg. Did he homestead in Winnipeg? No. You know, after he started wrestling, he hardly ever uh, came back to Winnipeg. Like his, his parents were still living in the North End, so he would come in and visit his folks and maybe pick up a match while he was in town. You know, in the 70s, he had a couple of spots for the AWA. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when, one of the really fascinating things about Gordienko isn't even a wrestling fact. It's, you know, when he got over to Europe and he, he, I mean, as a kid, he was like always like dabbling in art and things like that. But when we got over to Europe, like he just discovered this like rich culture of art and even, you know, had the opportunity to study directly under Pablo Picasso. Wow. Um, so, so when he wasn't on the road wrestling, you know, he was in an art school and, and taking art lessons and learning how to paint. And so when he finished wrestling, you know, entirely in, in 1975, um, he had this, uh, long-term love affair with a Contessa in Italy. And so he was living in a castle in the hills of Italy, uh, painting every day and riding horses, uh, until it's just sort of, he reached a point in, in life when it was time to come home. And then he settled on Vancouver Island and lived out the rest of his days. And, and when did he pass away? Uh, 2002. How old would he have been when he passed away? Mm, uh, off the top of my head, I want to say 74. Wow. Talk well, about a North End but, Winnipeg boy making good. Yeah. Living in a castle in Italy. Yeah. That's, imp- that's in- incredible. Um, so that's the type of stories you tell in your book, in this upcoming book, Uncontrolled Chaos? Yeah. You know, it's, it's trying to find a way to really thread that into the narrative. So, 
uh, I mean, first of all, there's, there's so little, uh, information out there. Like when, you, for example, if you talk about the stampede wrestling territory, yeah. people will talk about the Hart family, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not talking about the workhorses that kept the territory alive when the Hart boys were out wrestling in Japan and Germany and Atlanta, trying to make their names internationally, like the Cuban assassin and Gamma Singh and, uh, Dave rule, you know, these, these were the guys that were really like, you know, logging, logging the hours and, you know, one of the sections of the book actually lists like the top 100 most prolific wrestlers. So who wrestled the most matches, who had the most wins in Canadian history. And people are going to be surprised when they see that, you know, Bret Hart, that name that we automatically assume with Canadian wrestling isn't even in the top 20. No, I, that actually wouldn't surprise me as much as you think, because he might be the most successful Canadian wrestler, but after 84, he was still a young man when he went to work for Vince. Yeah. So there's a lot of guys, you know, that, uh, that, you know, have made that, that list where you're like, okay, I'm kind of familiar with the name. I just had no idea they were such a big deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and put in so much time, you know, to, to, you know, wrestling in Canada. So is the win loss record specific to matches in Canada or matches in their career? Uh, specific to matches in Canada. Okay. That makes um, sense. Yeah. The, there was, uh, a lot of, you know, when you think about, you know, the results research and I've been doing that since 1994. Now the collection is, uh, more than 6,000 pages wow. uh, and more than 60, 60,000 shows from 1876 to now. I think I main evented uh, 1876. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll check the record. So 60,000 shows since 1874 that you've been able to find the results for. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes only the lineup. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, and, and it's kind of a, an ironic thing. Like right now in the digital age, it's actually harder uh, to find results if you're not right on top of it and sort of following, you know, the social channels of the promoters because nobody's advertising in the newspaper anymore. No. Uh, and nobody has that relationship with the sports editors anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's actually easier to find results from the 30s than it is to find them from the 2010s. I would imagine it'd be tough to be able to vet your sources too with online stuff because, you know, the internet's got lots of misinformation out there. And if you go to a library and you find it in a book, that's that's pretty much the vetting process there. Yeah. There's a, there's a, you know, and then I think the other, the other unique challenge of wrestling that, that you don't have have in other sports is, you know, as an example, right now, I'm already working on, on, on a next project and putting together a list of Canadian born professional wrestlers. And, you know, in the first 1500 names on the list, when I like cross-reference that with all of the gimmicks that they used, you might have 1,500 names that combined wrestled 3, 000, under 3,000 different names. Wow. So yeah. try, trying to attribute, you know, the stats to, you know, and, and some of that is, okay, there's a, a one-off because uh, somebody no-showed, so they needed someone to double up. And if they didn't simply just say, okay, well, you know, tonight, uh, you know, Chris, you're going to wrestle twice. Oh, no, 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 we can't have that happen. So you know, in match three, you're going to be under this mask and we're going to call you this. So trying to put all those pieces of the puzzle together is, is, uh, you know, one of the challenges you definitely don't have when you're researching the career of like Wayne Gretzky. Definitely. Like, well, what about that? What about that year that he, uh, you know, he played under the name, the, you know, the masked gunman. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, 
your first book or second book, I guess it was, came out in 2009 and it was called Wrestling in the Canadian West. This is a sequel to it? Yeah, you know what? It uh, after I did that one, um, you know, w- when you get into like the nuances of of wrestling, I just thought like the project was such a monster. I don't know if I'll ever tackle it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, you also had the people that said, "Okay, well now you've done the book on Canadian West. When's your book on the Canadian East?" <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And so I thought, okay, well, when the pandemic happened and life shut down. There was nowhere to go and nowhere to be except at home in front of a computer screen. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll tackle that Eastern Canada project. And then, you know, as the pandemic uh, continued, I thought, well, you know what? Like, by the time I get the East one out, it'll be time to update the West. So why don't I just look at doing a national representation of wrestling history that really focuses on 1930 to the present? Because that's really when the territories really started to get established. Um, and, and they cover it as thoroughly as I possibly can. How many pages is it going to be? Uh, 462 pages. That's incredible. Just think of how much work goes into researching enough material to come up with 462 pages. Impressive. Um, what what is the thing that you found most surprising? I, 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 you brought up Gordianko, but like, even even in the modern era of history, say from 75 on, what were the things that were most surprising in your research? You know, I, I think, you know, if you talk to people in, in every region of the country, you know, they all have this very strong emotional attachment to their sort of home promotion. Uh, and so everyone will say, well, you know what, you know, Stampede Wrestling was the best or no, Vancouver All-Star Wrestling was the best. But when you look at the, the sheer volume of activity that was happening, um, you know, the West was actually pretty easy to research comparatively to the East. Um, because you had in, you know, in, in, in the case of Stampede Wrestling, for example, you know, Stu was wrestling, uh, you know, presenting shows six nights a week. So once you got the rhythm down and said, okay, we've got Friday in Calgary, Saturday in Edmonton, Sunday is typically off. Monday is Lethbridge, Tuesday is Red Deer, Wednesday is Saskatoon, and Thursday is Regina. You know, you've got your your sort of roadmap set up. Okay, these are the newspapers I need to check out, and these are the days of the week I need to be looking specifically. And when you try to apply that the same way in Ontario, it just doesn't work because, um, and if you've ever looked at the, you know, the, the old match results that sometimes you'd see in the back of Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine, and you'd see these shows from Maple Leaf Gardens in the 70s where they had like 10 matches on the show. And you're like, how could they possibly sustain a roster with that many people on the payroll? Well, what was happening in, you know, Ontario, it wasn't a six show a week schedule. Uh, they had Toronto and Maple Leaf Gardens on Thursday nights. But then every other night of the week, every single night of the week, they were running three shows. Wow. So those that 10 match card got split up into three, three match cards and they were wrestling three shows a night all throughout the rest of the week. Uh, and it was the same in Quebec. Uh, so you had you know, the Rougeaux running Montreal and Quebec city and Ottawa as their major cities, but there was always a smaller show that was happening as well. So they were running at least two shows a night, uh, even including the night that Montreal was on. So they had like a 14 show schedule per week. 
And then in, in 1971, when the Vachans came in to run opposition to the Rougeos, they came in running equally big cards with the same schedule. So now you've got, you know, this 28 shows a week happening in Quebec uh, for a period of about four or five years. Uh, so just like the sheer volume of, of work that was happening and the star power that was going on in Montreal at that period of time, it's just completely overwhelming. So, and that was started in the seventies. When did Montreal and like the Quebec territory start to dry up a little bit? Was that in the late eighties or mid eighties? Well, there was a, there was a gap. So from 71 to, I want to say 74, it was red hot. Yeah. So you had. You had the, the Rougeaus drawing upon uh, Detroit and using the Sheik's crew out of Detroit. And then you had Vachon, of course, drawing upon his relationships with Minneapolis and Vern Gagne and the AWA. And, you know, it was just this perpetual cycle of them trying to outdo each other. And, you know, they reached like unparalleled heights, you know, so in 72, the Rougeaus drew 26,000. Wow. You know, at, at, at Delorimier Park in Montreal. So the following year, you know, Vachon had to do it and they drew 29. Wow. Um, but then you, you, you know, you reach a point where, okay, we've shotgunned everything that we can, we can do to outdo the other guy. Uh, houses started to drop, you know, conflict started to happen when those houses started to drop. And then in 74, they actually tried to do joint super shows. Mm-hmm. You know, so they put some of these dream matches together. But the problem was, as happens when you get two promoters that don't trust each other working together, uh, rather than give the people, you know, a, a, a main event finish that they could get excited about, you know, they ended up being like, you know, oh, we're going to have this go to like a double count yeah, out. Negotiated and, finishes. And after, yeah. and, and after they did that once, the second time they tried it, the, the draw was nowhere near it was on the first. And by the end of the year, both companies were pretty well you know, done. Wow. So from 70, 75 to 80, the territory was dead. Yeah. Until uh, Gino Brito came in and got funding and support from Andre the Giant and Frank, Frank Valois. They all came in and, and reopened with international wrestling in Montreal. And it took them about two or three years to build it back up to a level where they could get shows back into the Montreal Forum. Yeah. So, so that dead period for, for Quebec, was it, a result of them hot shotting everything they had, just blowing their 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 wad, and then having nothing left. I think it was the the combination of of that, but then also because the territory was so hot, then you have the American promoters get very very interested and say, "Well, holy shit! Like if these guys are drawing these kind of crowds in Montreal, like we should get these guys on our on our circuit." So then you had guys like Dino Bravo, uh, you know, getting signed to go to the North Carolina. Uh, you know, first with the, the Eddie Einhorn IWA and then getting in with, you know, mid Atlantic, uh, you had guys, you know, you know, getting noticed and going to the AWA or to the WWF. Uh, so, you know, this sort of this migration of guys that, well, geez, these guys are really big deals in Montreal that we should bring them in. Uh, cause obviously they draw. And so you had that combination of things happening where talent was moving up, uh, you know, some of the old talent was moving out. Uh, and and the crowds were just burned out. 
Uh, Vance, I wanted to ask you something before we move on with this. The nuts and the bolts of the writing process, because that's something that a lot of times has to be developed. But did you have a love for writing early on? Yeah, you know, when I was... Uh, you know, in high school, you know, I think I had mentioned to like a guidance counselor one time. They said, what do you want to do when you get out of school? I said, I want to be a pro wrestler. And he laughed in my face and said, okay, but you know, we can't put that in the yearbook. So what are you going to, what are you going to tell people you want to do for a living? Like really a real job. And um, I thought, well, geez, I'd like to be a newspaper reporter. Uh, and then I found out that newspaper reporters don't make any money. <laughs> um, it's like there's no money in, in that job at all. Uh, Still so, uh, yeah, uh, you know, but I always had a passion for writing. And so even as a, as a teenager, I was finding ways to, you know, you know, get, you know, odd jobs at the local newspaper and, you know, you know, cover some of those feel good events like, Oh, the circus came to town. I'll go down there and write a story about that. Uh, so, you know, writing has always been, you know, an interest and, and a, and a passion, but I certainly don't have the, the patience or creativity to write fiction. Yeah, and nonfiction, you know, particularly in professional wrestling, the stories are way more fascinating than anything you could ever make up. Absolutely, as seen with heels. It wasn't as good as the real thing, but that's just my opinion. Um, so let's pivot for a second. You broke into the wrestling game as a 17-year-old, correct, with River City Wrestling? Yeah. 17 yeah. When, you had your, when you had your professional debut. What are some career highlights? I could guess them, but I'd like to hear you mention what some of your career highlights were in the ring. You know, I think, you know, some of the highlights that, that come, it, it's, it's those things that you didn't plan for or expect. So, you know, when you get into the business, you know, sometimes, uh, I think many people do, they get in and they've got this vision that, okay, well, it's going to be a, a WrestleMania main event for me at some point in my future. Uh, you know, n- not realizing that this is very misguided and, and you're very often being counseled and coached by people who don't even have the ho- uh, a hope of getting that themselves. And if they can't, how can they help you get there? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the first, first highlight for me was the opportunity to be able to uh, tour nationally. Um, because once you've, once you've got out of that home territory and I mean, you guys have been in, in the Winnipeg scene, you know how it's very self-deprecating uh, and, and very much a, well, I'm the big fish in the small pond uh, kind of mindset. Um, and I, w- I won't mention names because we know who those guys are. Um, but it, once you got out and had this context, that, okay, wait a minute, I'm not a big deal. Uh, every, every time that I wrestle in a new territory or a new town, I'm, I have to reprove myself, uh, you know, whether, whether it's an expectation of the promoter or just something you know yourself that, okay, these, this, this crowd doesn't know me. I need to reintroduce myself every night, you know, and I can't just go back to the same, same spots that I'm doing at Chalmers every week because these people don't know them and they're not going to pop for that. Yeah. Uh, so just that, I think that self-awareness, uh, even the, you know, the, the first opportunity to get out on the road and, and experience that when you would come home to Winnipeg, you just had this like huge aha moment. Then, you know, the next time you walked into a Winnipeg locker room where you're like, Holy shit, I can't believe I've been listening to this asshole for three years because he's been steering me completely wrong. I I don't know that that Uh, was necessarily intentionally wrong either. My experience as a booker would, would lay parallel to what you just said. I always found that the guys that had to drive in for more than five hours 
and had to like stay in a hotel and had to sacrifice an entire day to come in always Mm -hmm. carried themselves differently. Like they were more vested in the opportunity than the guy that came from 20 minutes away from his house. However, I would also say that when that same guy that came 20 minutes from his house and kind of had that Winnipeg-itis, when he went on the road and went to Edmonton, he was different when he went to Edmonton. He didn't pull the same shit in Winnipeg locker room, or he didn't pull the same shit in the Edmonton locker room that he might do in his home locker room. I think it's just a creature of comfort. Maybe because you've seen more territories you could say differently, but I, I think it has to do with the commitment it takes to get to a, to an event that far away. Maybe no. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's somewhat fair. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's always, you know, and, and I know, I know Mike could speak to this having worked as a promoter and a booker with, you know, top talent in the industry you know, one of the, the weirdest dynamics is often when you're working with people that have had success, they are so chill and so easy to do business with versus the guy that's never been anywhere and thinks that he's a big deal. Yeah. That's a fair, uh, that's a, be- that's a very fair point. Like in the WFX locker room, the guys that were making the most money and who had earned the most money in their careers were much more amenable to do stuff than some of the guys that had made the least. It was kind of eye opening in some cases, but yeah. And, and, and on top of that, the dynamic was interesting where, um, the most helpful guys were the guys, Bob Holly drove in from Iowa every, every three weeks. And he, everyone had said, he's a, he's a bully and a, he's going to be a, a cha- challenge in the locker room. He was the most, chill guy. He, he was the best leader we had. He wanted to help the young guys. Um, but the young guys, yeah. the young guys in Winnipeg had an opinion of some, like what you say is a hundred percent, right. That there is a problem underlying the Winnipeg scene. I've never understood what caused it. I've never understood what has allowed it to permeate for so long. Do you have a theory to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just think that it was, it, it happened because there was a, a period of time where, Winnipeg largely, I mean, and, and, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Darren Metzler would say <laughs> Winnipeg was ge- geographically castrated. And, <laughs> you know, at the, at the time I never really thought about it, but, you know, in, in Toronto, you had guys that, you know, were either working in, in Michigan or New York, you know, the Maritimes guys are working in, you know, New England, uh, you know, Calgary, you know, a similar situation to Manitoba, but because of the positioning of Stampede Wrestling, a lot of guys were better networked. Yeah, and it also uh, helped off the, of the Hart family name. Yeah, and it also helped the territory had five major markets they could run within five hours, right? So they could, yeah, so they could get uh, talent to and, come there and and stay there for a longer period. Yeah, so you had that period of time from when the AWA closed in '86. Um, where now we were really cut off. Like there was, there was no other talent coming in just casually on the weekend. Like here in Vancouver, uh, they, they were so close to Seattle that, you know, you had these American guys that were coming up and it's just excited to, to, to be, to be here. And, you know, when you have Winnipeg, it's okay. Well, well, there's, there's nobody coming in. So the stars are who's here. Um, and you know they were they were allowed to to dictate and run roughshod. And when you had this this generation of guys with that mindset that now have passed that on to the next guys coming in, you know it's kind of like that you know that fable of you know the 
you know, the monkey's in the cage. And if you try to climb the ladder and grab that banana, you get shot with a water gun. Well, only, after only a little bit of time, you know, the, you know, the monkeys will, will stop you from trying to grab that banana anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that that's really what happened where guys were so paranoid about their own position in that local market that they never wanted to see anyone else succeed above them and would do everything they could to discourage them, whether overtly or, or, or covertly. Interesting. Fascinating, actually. We could talk about this all day, but I want to talk about Vance Nevada's wrestling career. How does the ladder match with Robbie Royce rank up there in, say, top 10 matches? Uh, of my career? Yeah. Um, it, it wouldn't be on the list. Wow. So uh, what's number one or number it, five? What are some of the highlights? I think, you know, some t- sometimes the, um, the matches where the light bulb comes on uh, are tremendously impactful. And one of those for me was uh, the first time that I had the opportunity to wrestle with Adam Pierce. Mm-hmm. Um, because often, you know, and, you know, coming out of Winnipeg, um, you know, you reached a point where, okay, well, you know, if I want to get booked with any promoter, I know that I can just call them and I'll be on the show. I don't really have to work as hard, uh, you know, to, to prove myself. Uh, and so when I left Winnipeg, and I got to Vancouver the first time, uh, you know, Michelle Starr came to me and goes, well, listen, you've been wrestling eight years. Like, where do you see yourself on the card? You know, like what, what angle would you like to be in? And, you know, who do you want to be programmed with? And I just remember being so burned out just from, you know, being immersed in, you know, the, the booking politics of Winnipeg and, uh, that whole deal that I said, you know what, if it's all the same with you, Mr. Starr, I'd just like to work the opener. And he looked at me like I had two heads and uh, he said, you know, are you, are you serious? Like, you know, you're a guy with some time. I said, no, I just, I would just like to work the opener and not have that pressure of, you know, guys feeling that I've come in from the outside and I'm campaigning for a spot or, you know, and I, I don't care. Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm going over or I'm putting somebody over, like, just give me a year of just, just being the opener and, and just, you know, refinding my spot and um you know, every now and then you would have a have a match where uh you know and adam pierce was one of those guys where you know you've you have this self-image of yourself you know from the time you've had in the business where you feel like you're really good and then when you get in the ring with a guy who is truly a master within three minutes of engagement you have that aha moment to real, realize like holy shit, I'm not actually that good. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, like, you know what, I'm, I'm just average. And, uh, you know, I should, I should, I shouldn't be in main events. Uh, but, you know, to his credit, you know, he was a world champion and in that, then that old school style of wrestling, uh, you know, made me look credible as a main eventer. And I just remember, you know, coming out of that match, uh, and, and just sort of having that light bulb moment is saying like, wow. Um, and there's only been, you know, out of, you know, close to 1600 matches that I've had, you know, two or three times where I've had a situation like that, where you're in there with somebody that you realize I am completely outclassed in this moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have that, uh, awareness to realize that, 
you know, your shit doesn't stink. You know, your shit does stink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that those, those were probably uh, very valuable uh, to me or when you'd have a, an opportunity to work with someone that you respected tremendously. Um, uh, I can remember a match in the Cloverdale fairgrounds where I was working with Gangrel and, you know, at that time I was kind of known as a, I'm not a punch something kick guy. I'm a wrestling guy and I'm not going to brawl with you. I'm going to wrestle you. And I remember, you know, we were talking about the match and I said, why don't we turn that around? Cause you're kind of known as the punch stomping kick guy. And so why don't we turn it around where, you know, you're the baby face and you want to wrestle and I just want to punch stomp and kick. And, you know, he's like, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's do it. And I remember him coming back after the match and, and, uh, uh, he was talking to the referee and the referee said, how was that for you? And, and he said, uh, you know, I really like working with Vance Nevada because every time I do, I learn something new. That's a hell of a compliment. And yeah. I, just thought, I just thought like, that's such a flattering statement. Like here is this guy who has had, you know, the career heights that he has had. Um, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't have to say anything. <laughs> and, and just this, this tremendous compliment. And I, and you know, in the, in front of the locker room where guys are like, well, holy shit, that name guy just said that this local guy who, you know, we see every week is, is really good. Yeah. Um, you know, so is kind of moments like that, that, you know, sometimes not even entire matches, just moments within matches that, um, you know, were takeaways, both good and bad. You know, sometimes when you have a match and in your mind, you think, oh, this is going to be great. And then you go out there and, yeah, it takes a fatal wrong turn. Ama- uh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, the book is called Uncontrolled Chaos. How can people order it? Uh, well, I'm hopeful that uh, by the time we hit air, it will be uh, live on freezenpress.com. Freezenpress.com. Um, yeah, nice Manitoba company yeah. Yeah. Uh, ba- based in Altona. Um, yeah, so uh, people will have the option to purchase a hardcover, paperback, uh, or electronic uh, edition. Yeah, it'll be a, a available worldwide uh, probably by the time where uh, this interview hits air. Awesome. And will you be doing book signings? Will you be touring with the book at all? Yeah, uh, we'll be having, uh, we've already started to, you know, make some commitments in principle, uh, you know, in, in Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan. No dates in BC or the Maritimes yet. But uh, as soon as I've got, uh, you know, carry copy of inventory in hand, then uh, I'll be uh, making those those announcements loudly and, when, and, and widely. And when you travel, will you be traveling with hardcover or softer? Will it matter? Um, I probably with paperback. Yeah. Um, especially if you're traveling by plane and they're really concerned about weight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, and depending on how the schedule comes together, maybe it's a drive, and that's uh, not not foreign to me. So stay tuned on on those details as they. Uh, take shape. Well, that's excellent. We wish you the best of luck with the book. I, we encourage everyone who listens to the podcast to buy it. I'll be buying a copy. Hopefully, uh, I'll, maybe we'll even get you on the show when you're in Manitoba for the book signing. Sure. Sounds great, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vince. This episode of the Total Bees Cheese Show is powered by FirstRow.ca, Canada's online collectible store where you'll find the coolest sports cards, autographs from your favorites, action figures, and of course, wrestling collectibles galore. 
As a loyal Total B She Show listener, you can get 10% off your order using the code Bees Cheese. Again, the code is B E E Z S H E E Z, one word, and receive 10% off your order. Firstrow.ca, Canada's online collectible store. This is Wayne Stanton from episode six of the Total Bees She's Show. If you're not listening to this podcast, I think you're a coward. All right, Mike, we got some questions queued up. I'm excited for this. The soon-to-be-sponsored, exciting, Inbox. <laughs> How about Vance Nevada before we just... I don't want to glance over that. Like, yeah. that Gordianko story was incredible. I'm very proud of you for behaving yourself. Oh, was, I promised I would. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one time where I keep a promise to you, Chris. <laughs> one time. All the all the other promises are... You know, going. I swear I thought Robbie Royce versus Vance Nevada ladder match should have been top 10 in his career. That was really a good match. And I think the unfortunate part for Vance, and I'm not criticizing when I say this, but I think his he doesn't want to give credit to that part of his career when he was a very, very big part of the local scene. That match and the impact it had on the local scene belongs in the top 10 in his career. He brings up him and Adam Pierce. He brings up him and Gangrel. That's all good and fine and great. But I guarantee, I, I think that's a match, Royce versus Nevada, that belongs. It's definitely one of the top 15, 20, 25 matches ever locally that I ever saw. And that, and I, although Omega probably shattered it with about one through 3,000 of the matches, but... Is there footage of that uh, Robbie Royce? I, I think there is. Robbie Royce probably has it. We should get it. Yeah. Uh, but let's go to the question from the soon-to-be-sponsored mailbox. I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too. And we've got Dave Cote with his weekly question. Oh, don't be hard. On, you know what? I love Dave. He's an engaged listener. Yes. And his questions, like, we get about five to seven questions that are interesting, but his are actually, like, it comes from he, something he hears in the show, and then he follows up, and I will answer those questions. I, even if we had to go to three questions a week, I would still answer Dave's weekly question. I appreciate it. And Keep I'm, them coming. And I'm not being hard on him. I'm just having a this little This guy little drives fun. five hours to go to independent shows. That is as good. And you, I always say the most important part of the puzzle is the fans. Dave Cote, you're the best. Dave Cote, the real deal. He says, if you were starting a promotion today, Mike, from scratch... Who would be your number one go-to talent to sign, of course, outside of office production and support staff? Okay, so I'm going to be very clear here. I'm going to set a a condition that it's not an AEW guy or a WWE guy who contractually I couldn't get. And I would respect that I couldn't get Nick Aldis and I couldn't get, um, you know, impact guys. So let's... Let's take that off the table. Okay. The number one guy I would try to get would be uh, EC3 or, and and it wouldn't like, it's not like when I started WFX. When I started WFX, Liam Phillips knew I, I was going to go with Kevin Chevy and AJ Sanchez as my best tag team. And, and then I thought I was going to go with Umaga, but then he passed away. I've told this story. There, there isn't that pool of amazing talent that's just right there right now that you can jump on. I would maybe try to get an international guy, um, maybe a New Japan guy or an All Japan guy. Um, it, there's not a name that jumps out at me, I'll be honest with you. If I could scoop a free agent, 
then that's a little different. If I had a billion dollars like Tony Khan, the talent is out there to get. Kevin Matthews comes to mind and uh, Luke Hawks comes to mind as as really good talent that you could build a roster with. Um, but it's not easy to say that it that it would come together that easily. So I'm gonna I'm because of the conditions I set that I'm not just gonna say oh Roman Reigns and and you know uh, MJF. Come on, you'd scoop Orange Cassidy. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> but MJF would be the number one guy. But he he's locked up. It's yeah. not a possibility. But here's what independent wrestling companies should know. And this is what you would need to know when you start to build a roster. When I started to build the WFX roster, I wanted to specialize in something. I wanted fans who watched our, I wanted our brand to have an identity. And so what I did is I built around tag teams first, Chevy and Sanchez, best tag team in the business in 2010. This could be today if they teamed up again. Um, And then I would go, uh, I would go one step further. I would go, I went with Cannon Corbin at that time, the Davaris, Eclipse and Kamikaze. And then we had Daniels and Mentalo team up. We had so much depth in tag team. So if I was an independent right now, like 3D Pro Wrestling or Primo's Wrestling or any in top talent in Alberta or BC, anywhere in North America, Minnesota, First Wrestling, all these companies, I would, I would decide, okay, my identity is either going to be the top dream matches for indies if you could do it and it was cost cost feasible or I would build a tag team division or a women's division or something that made people say they really do that better than anybody else. The WFX tapes, you can see episode one through 13, try to tell me that tag team division wasn't epic and amazing. And we still had star power on top of that. Charlie Haas, Billy Gunn, they were the top angle, Bob Hawley, Michael Elgin, um, Larry Zabisco, Bushwhacker Luke, Eugene, Johnny Fairplay, Jesse Goddard's, but the tag team division was really our identity and our pulse. So if I was starting today, I would decide, okay, the business needs this. The business will, the fan base will support this. And I would try to build my roster around that. Fair enough. And if you want to see those WFX tapes, head over to YouTube right now. And Total B-Sheets. Total B-Sheets. They're all up there. Our next question is from Tanya. Seems we've got We have a- females listening? That's I what, love it. Uh, yeah, it's a great, great news. Uh, Tanya asks... Mike Davidson seems to talk very negatively about Tony Khan. <laughs> is he jealous? And I mean, I don't know how many ways I can say yes, see, yes, affirmative, definitely. <laughs> no, I am not jealous of Tony Khan. <sighs> what a t- 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 what a question. Um, I think she's taking a dig. Leave the t- 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 in there too. Don't edit me out. That's not a stutter. Um, it's not a dig. I believe my criticisms of Tony have been well-placed. Uh, I stand by them, even the ones earlier in the show today. There's a couple of things I want to talk about after questions that leave this, that lead from this. Um, Tony Khan isn't an expert. Tony Khan is a billionaire, or his dad is. Tony Khan had $100 million to do what he wanted to do as a super fan. It's not an expertise. He didn't have a, a certain, he had a passion, but he didn't have a certain, certain skill set that turned to expertise. So he, he's very valuable to the wrestling business for starting the company and getting the TV contract on Turner and all the things he's done well. But I'm not jealous of him. Even when I compared myself to him earlier, it wasn't petty and it wasn't jealous. 
I don't think he could have succeeded in the role that I did. I think I might be able to succeed in the role he's in. I wouldn't want to. But I think the expertise factor needed to run a wrestling company is different than he has. And in three years, he hasn't gone out and hired experts to help him run the company. He's hired experts to be agents and he's hired experts to be wrestlers and he's hired experts to be commentators, but he hasn't hired experts to help run a wrestling company. And I think he needed to do that. And there are guys like Scott Demore does an amazing job at impact really does. And I think court Bauer does an amazing job at MLW starting on a lot smaller budget. I might add. Dixie Carter did a fair, she did a really good job running TNA. And I don't like that people crap on her considering what she was working with. I think she did a great job. Tony's done a good job. My problem is Tony needs to understand that being the booker makes you a pinata. I, I've always gotten criticized for the way I booked. I didn't like being criticized, but I knew it came with the territory. So when I say Tony Khan's a bad booker, I give you examples of ways he's a bad booker. And he is. He needs to expand it. He can be a part of the process like Vince McMahon was part of the process, but give it off to other people to be experts at booking. But that's not what he does. And for that, I am not jealous of Tony Khan. I would not trade my life to be the son of a billionaire and people can say I'm crazy, but I love working as hard as I do. And I love scratching and clawing and getting ahead based on natural God-given talent and opportunity offered, opportunity seized, opportunity accomplished upon. And I don't think Tony Khan has ever had to live that life. So that's why I'm not jealous of him. Now, moving on, something I talked about last week that I want to wrap before we go off the air today. I talked about the two wrestlers, Dave Cote's question last week. It was, who were the, t- the guys I was really watching? And I forgot about when I said TJ Cannon and I said Chad Daniels, both right. are great talents. The guy I forgot is a guy that I think is better than he's been being produced to be. He's a rookie, raw. He's a second generation guy. And I think that AJ Sanchez and Danny Duggan and those guys that run CWE need to understand what they have. I'm calling them out. You have Brendan Cowan, who looks like a million dollars. Yeah, he does. He, I think he won the Mr. Canada bodybuilding championship. His face, he looks like a model. He looks like a poster boy. So, but before people say, well, that doesn't make him a good wrestler. Do you know what he did before he was a bodybuilder? He played for CIAU football for the Manitoba Bisons as a wide receiver. And before that, he was a standout high school athlete. So athletically, he's got more raw talent than anybody I've ever seen breaking into the wrestling game. I tell you that right now. I'll stake my reputation on it. Brendan Cowan, write the name down. Now, AJ Sanchez, Danny Duggan, recognize what you have today and develop it. Train him. He's Bobby Collins' son. Yeah. Okay? So his dad gets it. His dad's always fit in in any locker room he's ever been. Bobby Collins has never, ever... So there's not really going to be a bad habit there that came second generation. The kid made it in a in a football dressing room where you're definitely... You understand the coach is right. Somebody needs to take this guy and say, we're going to turn this guy into a million dollars. If you don't see that opportunity, then you're the problem, AJ Sanchez, and I love you, but you would be a problem if you're not seeing this. And Danny Duggan, if you're not catching this, you're the problem here. 
This guy should be front and center on your posters. This guy should be built to be the next thing. If you were ever going to do a Goldberg's type um, streak in local wrestling, this is the guy. But AJ should be working with him to develop him into a amazing professional wrestler. And somebody should be working with him to teach him how to cut a better promo than Adam Knight. This is a guy that should be into a program with Adam Knight because of the size and eventually, for the heavyweight championship of the CWE, it should be AJ Sanchez and Brendan Cowan in about a year, after a year of building him to be the biggest star. But I have a feeling that these guys are sitting there going, oh, well, we got to manage this ego. No, you don't have to manage the ego. What you have to do is make a commitment to produce him to be a superstar. And if you didn't see it, you will never get it. And you will never have what I have, which is a brain for making the business bigger. This guy could be built up to be your chick magnet when you want to draw fans. This guy could become the superhero for kids. This guy could be your top babyface for the next five years. Or until those idiots at WWE realize, hey, he's exactly what we say we're looking for. He's got the athletic background, he's got the look, and he's a bodybuilder. If you can produce him, make him the star. If he can play wide receiver in football level as high as CIAU, he can be a main eventer on a local wrestling scene. If you didn't get it, you are the problem. Mark my words. And we're not leaving yet. Those words have been marked. Good. We're not leaving yet. No, we, we've got some exciting stuff locally happening. I, I want <laughs> to move changing into my it. mood. I want to move in, move into that because uh, we've got a couple of minutes left here. But uh, you broke this news to me literally a few minutes ago. Uh, what's going on with uh, Primo's Wrestling? Primo's Wrestling. Primo's Wrestling. We never really talk about them much. Remember we, we I said... We talked about them last week and that was a, kind of the first time, I think. So at Comic-Con this year, they're running some shows... And they've got a venue in a community club called Deer Lodge Community Club. And I've always said, if you do something that makes me take note, we'll talk about you. I think the venue that people are running right now are too small. If you're running to draw under 200 people, you're not thinking big enough. You're maybe thinking realistically, but you're not dreaming big enough. I think when you dream big, you push big. Now, how about Comic-Con? How about the Winnipeg Convention Center? And what are you going to do to draw attention? Well, I don't know. How about bang? DDP's coming to town. Yeah. And if I was booking DDP, you know what I'd do? I'd get him to do a yoga convention for at the sure. same time because that's what he's known for. So I'd get the, all the yoga studios to do a DDP yoga session. Some ancillary yeah, revenue. Something good, right? Capitalize where you have the opportunity. So DDP's coming to town. I don't know exactly the date. It's Comic-Con in Winnipeg. And... Uh, what else is happening? They've got the Bollywood boys fresh out yeah. of WWE. So that's the the series from BC. Yep. Great talents, great people. But the one that excited me the most, and I'm glad he did it, is Nick Aldis, the former NWA world champions coming to town. And I'm sure there's more going to be added to this, but this is a pretty good package. I, I really like what, what, uh, what uh, Mark Merrick is doing. Yeah. You got a shot here, kid. Make it, make it matter. Um, good work. It's at the end of October, which is a good time. You're getting out of the summer and out of the back to school rush. Uh, let's see how this goes. Good, good luck to you. And um, yeah, I, I'm not endorsing it, but I'm saying good work. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for Nick Aldis too. I'm a big mark for Nick Aldis. So I'm, I'm going to try to be going to that, to that show for sure. Yeah, I don't think I will because, you know, I, I work at Spirit Halloween. You know, I, I, one last point. 
I spent my teenage years in the carny circuit of local wrestling, and it was not quite the carny that I wish it was. And then I spent a lot of my 20s trying to make it better than the regular, the regular carny independent wrestling, and into my 30s. And then I went into spirit. I, I figured it out why I lost, why I never have to get back into wrestling promoting with, with, because I left the carny circuit of wrestling and I, I've worked at spirit Halloween for 10 years. Yeah, It's like gimmicks are us. That's a, that's a carny. That's, that's, we, we set up our stores and the people come from miles around and it's amazing. And that's, you know, and, and there's the, the, what do they call it? The, uh, meme going around of yeah. Mike and his staff. And it's actually a picture of Bob Backlund in the 1993. Yeah, I saw that. Our friend, the ax switched it to our open, uh, Mike proud manager, spirit Halloween, Mike with his opening day roster. How true that was. That was amazing. Um, thank you everyone for listening. It's been great. Um, we talked a little bit about re- Winnipeg wrestling too much. I, one last thing I want to say, we had Eric Cannon on the show talking about that show at the mall of America. Sold out, sold out. Yeah, I knew it. Sold out. And he and first wrestling, they do a whole bunch of shows that have 500 people plus. That's what you have to be striving for as promoters. Look at what people are doing well in other markets and make it happen here or there or anywhere. You can do it, but you have to be working at it. You have to have a vision and you have to have the balls to go after it. And that's what's lacking sometimes. And with that, Mike Davidson's absolute favorite musical artist. Glenn Goza to play us out. Well, the boss called me up and said, come in to work. I just hung up on that slave driving jerk. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. Well, you'd think I'd rather be sweating on a dock or watching somebody use a hammer lock. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Well, I love to watch the missing link bang his head on a corner post and the romper bumper butt butt delivered by the ice man. The Freebirds, Roberts, Hayes, and Gardy, but what I like the most is Kerry delivering the iron claw as only the Vaughn Erics can. Well, the boss called again, said it's time and a half. You'll come in tonight, and I just had to laugh. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Well, my girlfriend called and friends, she could be a model for Fredericks of Hollywood, but she was hassling, really hassling. Said I could come over early and stay real late, but I told her, honey, if we have a date, we're going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Kevin Von Erich, when he's really high and flying, I like to see Ric Flair, but he's out there strutting. Andre the Giant must be seven foot nine. Well, I wouldn't miss this for a dozen girls, and I wouldn't miss this for nothing. I said, honey, I hope you ain't hurt. She said, I'm putting on my wrestling shirt. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Well, last night I dreamed my life was over. There was golden streets and fields of clover and the lights. They were dazzling. 
I looked for old St. Peter at the pearly gates. I found a note that said, I won't be too late. I'm going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. There's gentleman Chris Adams with his super kick in place. Young Mike Von Erich with his own iron claw. And I'll never forget the classic matches of the 70s and 80s. Two champions, Harley Race and David Von Erich. St. Peter told me as he let me in, from now on, every Monday and Friday, Glenn, we're going to wrestling. Going to wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Well, if I'd known this was going to happen, I wouldn't have bought those advanced tickets. By the way, St. Pete, are you sure these wings will fit in a ringside seat? Is Fritz coming up here anytime soon?